Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Number 877-381-3811, I, I said several weeks ago that uh, we're fighting a two-front war, a war with China, which is going to overtake us economically and militarily if this keeps up internally in the United States, and the Democrat Party. China and the Democrat Party. They're the two enemies of the United States. Now, did anybody really think that when the Bernie Sanders rioters, the Biden Bolsheviks, um, the down for the revolution athletes and Hollywood starlets and all the rest of them, that when they're talking about fundamentally transforming America, that they're going to leave the suburbs out? When they're talking about systemic racism, who do they think they're talking about? Certainly not themselves. I want to bring to your attention something, particularly as the pollsters say, the white college-educated women in the suburbs, they're leaving Trump. There's a massive gap. Massive. They don't like the way he tweets. I want to bring your attention a piece by Stanley Kurtz at National Review Online. And Stanley has been on the show before. He's written about this subject, but he's now expanding it. He'll be on this program in about an hour. It's a very important subject. He said President Trump had a great riff at his rally the other day in Phoenix. It was all about abolish, about how the left wants to abolish the police, abolish ICE, bail, even borders. And his riff is effective because it's true. The left has gone off the deep end, and they're taking the Democrats with them. Well, there's another abolish the president can add to his list. Hello, hello, America, yellow. 
And it just might be enough to tip the scales this November. Joe Biden and the Democrats want to abolish America's suburbs. Biden and his party have embraced yet another dream of the radical left, a federal takeover, transformation, and de facto urbanization of America's suburbs. What's more, Biden just might be able to pull off this fundamental transformation. Now do I have your attention? The suburbs are the swing constituency in our national elections. If suburban voters knew what the Democrats had in store for them, they'd run screaming in the other direction. Unfortunately, Republicans have been too clueless or timid to make an issue of the Democrats' anti-suburban plans. It's time to tell voters the truth. He says, I've been studying Joe Biden's housing plan, and what I've seen is both surprising and frightening. I expected that a President Biden would enforce the Obama administration's radical, affirmatively furthering fair housing, AFFH, regulation to the hilt. That's exactly what Biden promises to do. Now, by itself, that would be more than enough to end America's suburbs as we known them. What surprises me is that Biden has actually promised to go much further than Obama. Biden has embraced Cory Booker's strategy for ending single-family zoning in the suburbs and creating what you might call little downtowns in the suburbs. Combine the Obama-Biden administration's radical housing regulation with Booker's new strategy, and I don't see how the suburbs can retain their ability to govern themselves. It will mean the end of local control, including zoning, the end of a style of living that many people prefer to the city, and therefore the end of meaningful choice in how Americans can live. Shouldn't voters know that this is what's at stake in the election? It's no exaggeration, writes Kurtz, to say that progressive urbanists have long dreamed of abolishing the suburbs. Initially, these anti-suburban radicals wanted large cities to simply annex their surrounding suburbs, like cities did in the 19th century. That way, a big city can fatten up its tax base. Once progressives discovered it had since become illegal for a city to annex its surrounding suburbs without voter consent, they cooked up a strategy that would amount to the same thing. This de facto annexation strategy had three parts. Number one, use a kind of quota system to force quote, economic integration, unquote, on the suburbs, pushing urban residents outside of the city. Number two, close down suburban growth by regulating development, restricting automobile use, and limiting highway growth and repair, thus forcing would-be suburbanites back to the city. Wouldn't that be great? With no cops, too. Number three, use state and federal laws to force suburbs to redistribute tax revenue to poorer cities in their greater metropolitan region. If you force urbanites in the suburbs, force suburbanites back into cities, and redistribute suburban tax revenue, then presto, you've effectively abolished the suburbs. Obama's radical housing regulation puts every part of progressives' abolish the suburbs strategy into effect. Once Biden starts to enforce it the way Obama administration officials originally meant it to work, it will be as if America's suburbs have been swallowed up by the cities they surround. 
They will lose control of their own zoning and development. They will be pressured into a kind of de facto regional revenue redistribution. And they will even be forced to start building high-density, low-income housing. The latter, of course, will require the elimination of single-family zoning. With that, the basic character of the suburbs will disappear. At the very moment when the pandemic has made people rethink the advantages of dense urban living, the choice of an alternative will be eliminated. Now, that's all bad enough. But on top of the Obama housing program, Biden now plans to use Cory Booker's strategy for attacking suburban zoning. The housing rules work by holding HUD's community development block grants hostage to federal planning demands. Suburbs will not be able to get the millions of dollars they've used in HUD grants unless they eliminate single-family zoning and density in their business and density in their business districts. The AFFH, as it's called, also forces HUD grant recipients to sign pledges to affirmatively further fair housing, quote-unquote. Those pledges could get suburbs sued by civil rights groups or by the feds if they don't get rid of single-family zoning. The only defense suburbs have against this two-prong attack is to refuse HUD grants. True, that will effectively redistribute, redistribute huge amounts of suburban money to cities. But if they give up their HUD grants, at least the suburbs will be free of federal control. So let me just pull back. So the federal government wants to devour the suburbs. Zoning, economic issues, race issues, mobility issues, density issues. You got that? Now, this is true. You wouldn't have believed 30 days ago they'd be talking about abolishing the cops. The Cory Booker approach, now endorsed by Biden, endorsed by Biden, may block even this way out. Booker wants to hold suburban zoning hostage, not only to HUD grants, but to the federal transportation grants used by states to build and repair highways. It may be next to impossible for suburbs to opt out of those state-run highway repairs, Otherwise, suburban roads will deteriorate, and suburban access to major arteries will be blocked. These housing plus rules, the Booker plan, will leave America's suburbs with no alternative but to eliminate the single-family zoning and turn over their planning to the feds. Now, single-family zoning, they mean these single-family homes. They want you in a collective. They want you in high-rises or massive uh, apartment complexes. Slowly but surely, suburbs will become helpless satellites of the cities they surround, exactly as progressive urbanists intend. If America's suburban voters understood all this is what Biden and the Democrats have in store for them, no, Joe's a moderate. It could easily swing the election. That means President Trump now has another abolish to add to his list. Joe Biden and the Democrats want to abolish America's suburbs. There's just one hitch. Incredibly, although AFFH is arguably Obama's most radical initiative, Ben Carson's HUD has still not gotten rid of it. Ben Carson's HUD has still not gotten rid of it. Instead, Carson suspended enforcement of the rule early on and then tinkered around for three years trying to come up with a replacement. Now, what Carson has developed so far is something you might call AFFH light or Obama light, 
While this possible replacement removes many of the regulation's excesses, Carson has so far retained the most egregious feature. He still wants to use HUD money to gut suburban single-family zoning. How Carson can even think about taking this stance in the face of President Trump's explicit directive to reduce and remove excessive federal regulations is a mystery. It will be very tough for President Trump to make a political issue out of Biden's housing plans so long as his own cabinet secretary is talking about killing suburban single-family zoning with this Obama rule. He says, I think Carson's wobbling on this explains a lot about why Democrats have become so bold with their plans to undo suburban zoning. If even the Trump administration goes along with federal attacks on suburban zoning, that is federal zoning of the suburbs, the Democrats figure they've got political cover. Time was when Obama administration officials would turn somersaults to deny that they were going to control suburban zoning decisions, even when it was obvious that this was their plan. Now Biden and Booker are remarkably openly, publicly, talking about their desire to to densify, densify the suburbs and get rid of single-family zoning. The Democrat war on the suburbs is a golden gift to the president, but he won't be able to make use of it until he throws over Carson's light, Obama light, and completely guts Obama's wildly radical regulation. Then Trump can go to town on Biden and Dems for making war on the suburbs. If there were ever proof that Biden has shed his centrism, and been taken over by the left. This is it. Biden got the nomination by declining to endorse the most radical plans of his rivals. But take a look at his housing plans. And it's clear he's now a wholly owned subsidiary of the radical left. Progressive urbanists' long-cherished dream of abolishing the suburbs is now within reach. With AFFH restored to its original form by a President Biden, Enforced to the hilt and turbocharged by the Booker strategy of using HUD loans and transportation, uh, HUD monies and transportation monies as a threat. Suburbs as we know them will pass from the scene. With them will disappear the principle of local control that has been the key to American exceptionalism from the start. Since the pilgrims first landed, our story has been of a people who chose how and where to live and who governed themselves when they got there. Self-government in a layered federalist system, allowing for local control, right down to the township, is what made America great. If Biden and the Democrats win, that key to our greatness could easily go by the boards. You know what's shocking, Mr. Producer? I have to be the first broadcaster in years to mention this, thanks to Stanley Kurtz's piece at National Review Online. Maybe I'm not, I hope I'm not. I hope they all bring this up now. The primetime lineup at Fox, my friends there. You're listening to the monologue. Run with it. Run with it. This is a big deal. We're going to have the left, the Democrats, and their bureaucracy zone the suburbs. Change the housing rules. Change the lifestyle and the way of life. Now! You white college-educated women in the suburbs. Do I have your attention? The pollsters said you're the key. Are Trump's tweets still bothering you? I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. 
At Hillsdale College, faith and learning are integrated in pursuit of a common end. And I've been talking a lot about four pillars of the Hillsdale College mission, learning, character, faith, and freedom. Today, I'd like to focus on faith. As the founders of our nation knew, God is indeed the first authority and the motive toward which all learning moves. Hillsdale understands that we come to really know things through reason and faith, and their students are taught to pursue truth through both. Founded in 1844 by Christians, students of all faiths are welcome at Hillsdale College and always have been. How does the college teach the essentials of the Christian faith and religion? All students must take a course, the Western theological tradition, as part of Hillsdale's rigorous core curriculum. The college also offers majors in religion, philosophy and religion, and Christian studies. Hillsdale's campus is a welcoming place in which to discuss and practice faith. Respectful dialogue among Christians of different denominations and with students of non-Christian faiths is just one hallmark of the stellar college. Now to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Levinforhillsdale.com. All right, now if you're uh, if you're one of these Bernie Sanders and Biden Bolsheviks, if you're listening to these tenured Marxist professors, they look at the big picture. Why do they want to destroy police departments, Mr. Producer? But I mean, as a logical matter, why would you want to destroy a police department in your own community? Why would you want to do that? Most of the people in these communities don't want to do it. But why do the Cory Bookers of the world, Barack Obamas of the world, Joe Bidens of the world, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, why do they want to destroy the police departments? Remember, they're looking at a bigger picture. They're looking at the whole picture. You heard the article I just read. They want to make living in cities hellish. They want people to leave the cities. They want mass migration. Where are they going to go, Mr. Producer? To the suburbs. Which fits very neatly into their housing plan. Very neatly into their housing plan, which is to federally zone the suburbs. It also plays very neatly into the phrase systemic racism. Those who use that phrase are not talking about the inner cities. They're not talking about black people. They're talking about middle class, upper middle class people who live in the suburbs. It is they, you see, who are systemically racist. The suburbs are the target. The wealth in the suburbs, the target. The lifestyle in the suburbs, the target. You better pay attention to what I'm saying. I know what I'm talking about. I'll be right back. At Hillsdale College, faith and learning are integrated in pursuit of a common end. And I've been talking a lot about four pillars of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. Today, I'd like to focus on faith. As the founders of our nation knew, God is indeed the first authority and the motive toward which all learning moves. Hillsdale understands that we come to really know things through reason and faith. And their students are taught to pursue truth through both. Founded in 1844 by Christians, students of all faiths are welcome at Hillsdale College and always have been. How does the college teach the 
essentials of the Christian faith and religion, all students must take a course, the Western theological tradition, as part of Hillsdale's rigorous core curriculum. The college also offers majors in religion, philosophy and religion, and Christian studies. Hillsdale's campus is a welcoming place in which to discuss and practice faith. Respectful dialogue among Christians of different denominations and with students of non-Christian faiths is just one hallmark of this stellar college. Now, to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. levinforhillsdale.com. Lady Liberty, well, this is Mr. Liberty, the Mark Levin Show. Call him now at 877-381-3811. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I keep explaining that the Democrat Party is at war with America. It does not embrace Americanism. It doesn't embrace our founding. It doesn't embrace the Constitution. It doesn't embrace our principles. That's why any major threat internally to this country has involved or been led by the Democrat Party. Whether it's slavery or segregation, whether it's opposition to civil rights, whether it's attack on capitalism and private property rights, whether it's an attack on individualism, the Democrat Party is basically a a reincarnation, if you will, of some of these old dead European parties. It embraces the German philosophers, Hegel and Marx. The Democrat Party is about power. It's not about human liberty. And it's done a hell of a good job of persuading millions and millions of people the opposite, just like Marxists do, just like socialists do. They are the opposite of what they say they are. And they know how to play people by race, by gender, by religion, by economic status. They know how to play issues and cause panic and jealousy and anger, whether it's the environment or immigration, and of course race. This is what they do. But if you want to know what they're all about, you really do need to take the time to read the early progressives of Marx. I have, I'm not pushing this, I promise you. If you want to see it in a fairly uh, a concise form, even though it's not the easiest read in the world, Rediscovering Americanism and the Tyranny of Progressivism. You're living through it right now. They're using race as a reason to attack our institutions. They have been using the environment and climate change as a basis for attacking our institutions, capitalism and zoning and all the rest. But they feel they, they have found race to be a better avenue through which to operate. This is quintessential Marxism. It doesn't matter what they use. And so you have fools in Hollywood and fools in sports. You know, I remember when I was stopped by this cop. It was a terrible thing. Ah, yeah, uh, slavery, remember all that? So what's the answer to slavery? For the Marxists to enslave us all. We're busy fighting with each other. We're busy stereotyping each other. We're busy stigmatizing each other. Focused on the wrong things. 
basketball? Who gives an S about basketball? Except people associated with it, quite frankly. There are bigger things going on here. You destroy the, the uh, quality of life in the inner cities. Then those who can are going to leave the inner cities. You destroy the police in the inner cities. You destroy the quality of life in the inner cities. You destroy respect for private property and small businesses in the inner cities. You're not going to have small businesses and development in the inner cities. And so this is a way to force the depopulation of cities from the perspective of the Marxist. Is that not what Mao did in China? Is that not what Pol Pot did in Cambodia? And go right down the line. The city dwellers need to be in the need to be agrarians. You know, everybody needs to be equal. But the biggest problem they have is the suburbs. It's the suburbs. What are they going to do about the suburbs? They want the money that's in the suburbs. And if they can't, the only way you're going to ultimately control the country is to conquer more than just the cities. And the suburbs, while red, some purple, some blue, they need to be all blue. And these red states aren't changing fast enough, you see. With upward mobility or just mobility and immigration, some of them have changed. Virginia, Nevada, I mean, California. Georgia's in trouble from a liberal versus conservative perspective. Florida, Texas. But it's not good enough. It's not fast enough. And so Trump's in the way. Trump's in the way. The Republicans in the Senate, honestly, are just too stupid to see what's going on. They're just too stupid. And most of them in the House are too stupid to see what's going on. This is a much bigger picture, much bigger event that's taking place here. Plus, you don't need to burn down the suburbs to get what you want. It's harder to burn down the suburbs. They're more dispersed. In parts of the suburbs, they're heavily armed. The police are loved and respected. It's just tougher. See, you don't need to burn down suburbs. You control the suburbs. You take over the presidency. You hold the House. You take over the Senate. And then you crush the suburbs. I mean, you have Supreme Court justices like John Roberts that go along with Obamacare and other things. He'll, he'll contort the Constitution any way you want to. And so will many of these district court judges. The key to controlling the suburbs is zoning. Zoning. You control zoning, you control everything. And so now out of this backwoods department called Housing and Urban Development, Obama knew. That's how I control the suburbs. But then Hillary lost. Trump comes in. Now it's just kind of hanging there. Biden has said we're going to do that plus more. 
Not a single reporter has asked Biden about this, and I doubt any reporter will. I doubt any reporter will. This whole systemically racist thing was BS from day one. It's a fraud. Are there racists? Yes. And by the way, black, brown, yellow, red, white racists. And everybody knows I'm right. But even more, they will use the systemically racist, not just to destroy police departments, particularly in urban areas, but to destroy the suburbs. The suburbs are systemically racist. Look, that's where much of the wealth is. Look at all the white folks out there. Uh, look at the school systems are better. We need to fix, fill the inequality gap, uh, blah, 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 blah. The same Marxist BS that you're going to get. And the answer, of course, is what? Destroy. Which brings me to the next point. What exactly, what exactly do these Democrats and Marxists build? What do they build? Reminds me of the Middle East, the Palestinians. They're always blowing things up. Do they actually build anything? How many patents do they have? How many great authors are there? How many great scientists who've developed all kinds of medicines and so forth? You've got a zillion of them in Israel. Almost none of them among the Palestinians. Well, tell me, among these tenured social science and behavioral science and political science and philosophy and Professors, what have they created but nothing? What do these athletes create? Nothing. What does Hollywood get? Nothing. Nothing. The Marxists, the progressives, the status, call them whatever you want. Democrats. Democrats all. They don't build anything. Nothing. They destroy. Tax, regulate, destroy. And now their militia wing, as I've been calling it for weeks, really destroy. They're violent. But they have their plan. Elections only matter when they get power. This is the nature of fascism and Marxism and so forth. Then they have a mandate. If they lose an election, uh, then they believe they have a revolution to fight it. And that's what you see In the case of Trump, Trump won fair and square, but they wouldn't accept it, so they have to destroy him and everybody who supports him. Look, let me do it this way. What have you been called the last three and a half years? Neo-Nazis, white supremacists, white privilege, and many of you aren't even white. I'm just saying. They're beating you up. They're trashing you because you're their target. Trump will be here. Hopefully another four years, or you won't. But eventually he'll go. We have term limits for presidents. But you're not term limited. You're an American citizen. You live where you live. Your lifestyle is your lifestyle. And they cannot tolerate it. You're the enemy. You're standing in the way to Marxist utopia. Now, of course, the morons at the Washington Compost and the New York Slimes and the Constipated News Network and MSLSD and all the rest of them, they understand this. Or if they don't, hey, what's all this talk about Marxism? Of course, they ignore what the leaders of Black Lives Matter say and who they are. They ignore what the leaders, so be it, of uh, Antifa and the others, what they have to say. 
I didn't label this them this. They label themselves this. And Bernie Sanders, these hoodlums in the street, they're Bernie Sanders supporters. That's who they are. Those are his supporters that he has now given to Biden in exchange for Biden adopting Bernie Sanders' radical agenda, which is exactly what he's doing. And what I'm trying to explain is you need to really focus on what they're talking about, what their policies are, what they're presenting. Now, they may not be emphasizing it, but so what? Uh, 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 but, but, but Trump, uh, I don't like his tweets. His tweets. I, I, I don't like his tweets. I'll be right back. in. At Hillsdale College, faith and learning are integrated in pursuit of a common end. And I've been talking a lot about four pillars of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. Today, I'd like to focus on faith. As the founders of our nation knew, God is indeed the first authority and the motive toward which all learning moves. Hillsdale understands that we come to really know things through reason and faith. And their students are taught to pursue truth through both. Founded in 1844 by Christians, students of all faiths are welcome at Hillsdale College and always have been. How does the college teach the essentials of the Christian faith and religion, all students must take a course, the Western theological tradition, as part of Hillsdale's rigorous core curriculum. The college also offers majors in religion, philosophy and religion, and Christian studies. Hillsdale's campus is a welcoming place in which to discuss and practice faith. Respectful dialogue among Christians of different denominations and with students of non-Christian faiths is just one hallmark of this stellar college. Now to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. Levinforhillsdale.com. By the way, while we've been defending our liberty against the Democrat Party over the last few months, communist China has absolutely destroyed Hong Kong. They're now rounding up people with signs. They're rounding them up and they're bringing them to the mainland in China. Hong Kong is gone. The Prime Minister of England has offered all three million citizens of Hong Kong the right to come to Great Britain. We are so busy responding to leaks to the New York Times by Democrats in and out of the executive branch. We're so busy responding to media speculation and to Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and their own personal power-hungry drive that the world is changing before our eyes. In our country and outside our country, China is enormously dangerous. They are going to surpass our military. They're going to surpass our economy. It's their virus that did this to us. And it's very interesting. When I watched this Joe Biden press conference, such as it was, Soviet-style press conference where he knows the reporters in advance. It even sounded like he knew some of the questions in advance. That said, he didn't trash Xi of China. For all his talk about Trump and Putin, he didn't trash Vladimir Putin. He never does. I'm sure they have all kinds of dirt on him. So while what the fifth column in this country, the Democrat Party and its surrogates are a cancer within our gut. China's on the move. They're on the move. They also attacked India. 
It's a very dangerous situation. You know, LeBron James, he loves China. Nike's there, he made a lot of money there, and so forth. They have systemic genocide going on in China. Now, I hope, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening on the podcast, if you're listening on AM or FM or however you're listening, that you will bring the first hour of this program to the attention of all the people you know. Or you can actually download the link, can't you, Mr. Producer? I would think so. Download the link, marklevinshow.com, to tonight's first hour, and send it everywhere. Because this is the best-kept secret. What Biden intends to do to the suburban areas of the country. You want to know why? Because the Democrat Party is systemically racist. It always has been. It always will be. It always has been. It always will be. I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Notice, too, following up from last year, how the left ratchets things up constantly. Ratchet, 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 ratchet. So they'll knock off a billion dollars off the NYPD in New York City, which is disastrous. But it's not enough. You've got to do more. President signs an executive order on police reform. Not enough. You've got to do more. The Republicans, the Senate, come up with a bill that does more. Not enough. You've got to do more. More. Always agitating. Always pushing. Always attacking. The system, so much of which they control. That's the irony of their ideology. They attack a system in many respects that they run. Constantly purifying. But look at the various elements here. Why were they pushing climate change? Why were they pushing climate change? Because of the climate? No. Climate change, the Green New Deal, all aimed at what? Control, centralization, uh, reaching into every minute detail of your life and regulating it. An attack on capitalism. Capitalism is related to individual liberty and freedom and choice and free will. Income inequality they talk about all the time. Income inequality. Well, what does that mean? That means the government has to step in and equalize things. So now it's in the workplace. Even though the studies don't justify this, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Zoning. Well, we have to control zoning because we have to control the environment, of course. 
Now they want zoning. Defund the Metropolitan Police Departments all around the country. Make it unlivable in the cities. Absolutely unlivable. And then people move out to where? The suburbs or into red states. And then you have the government manipulating population mobility. Depopulation in one area, increased population in another. That's why the Democrats want open borders and they talk about getting rid of ICE. They do this for power. They do this for politics. They don't do it for the benefit of the country. They certainly don't do it for the benefit of the citizenry. This government exists for the citizens. We own the government. We own the country. But you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it the way we're talked about. The way we're abused. And it's the people who are successful in this system, whatever the race, the people who build things in this system, the people who who produce things, invent things, who are creative, they're the ones under attack. Because you see, the only way these people got where they got is because of white privilege. And if they're not white, it's because they're sellouts, you see. There's always an answer. And it's never rational, it's never factual. It's never substantive. There's always an answer. And it's all emotional and passionate. You know, uh, how old am I? I'm 62, going on 63 soon. I have spent my entire life, seriously, since I was the age of, I guess, 13 even, As a conservative activist. Not a Republican activist, but a conservative activist. Endorsing tax limitation and tax cutting candidates in the Republican primaries, working the polls, handing out leaflets. Oh, this is what I marked. What did you do? That's what I did. One day I thought it was so bad, our school board, and it was, that I decided to run. I made that decision when I was 18. I ran when I was 19, and I got elected at 19 while I was still going to law school. 1976, I backed Ronald Reagan in the Republican primary. Even when Ronald Reagan wasn't actively campaigning in Pennsylvania, there were a handful of us who supported him. This isn't Mark, this is your life. I'm leading up to something. And I would work those precincts. They were open at 6 in the morning and they would close at 8 at night. I never left. And again in 1980. And the Reagan Revolution. The Reagan Revolution was magnificent. When John McCain was running against Obama, I said to myself, he keeps saying he's a conservative. He's not conservative. He has some conservative views, but he's not a conservative. It's not so much that there's a litmus test, but as Potter Stewart said about pornography, I know it when I see it, Mr. Producer. And I didn't see it in McCain. He was a big government Theodore Roosevelt type. That was his hero. Theodore Roosevelt was a big progressive. The idiot progressives don't even understand they're trying to tear down a statue of a man who was in their corner. But that's a whole other story. 
And so I decided one day to sit down and write a book about constitutional conservatism as well as its opposite, progressivism. And every night after work, I go to the office, I work till 3, 4 in the morning, I drive home, I get up again at 6, 30 or 7, back to the office. Every weekend, every single weekend, I would work and work and work. And then I finished the book. It took me about 14 months, give or take. I always had the title in my mind. As a kid, I had the title in my mind. And I finished it. And I said it to, sent it to my father. And I asked him to read it. And I didn't hear from him for a week, Mr. Producer. And he calls me on the phone, with my mother on the phone too. They were very excited. And he said, you're going to sell a million copies of this book. I said, well, you, it's nice of you to say that. But I, I hear that because you're my father. And I'm here. he said, no, 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 no. You're going to sell a million copies of this book. Because, ladies and gentlemen, nobody in the conservative side of the ledger sells a million copies of a book unless it's a fiction or something like that. And the book was called Liberty and Tyranny. And it sold a million and a half copies. And Liberty and Tyranny and the Tea Party movement were birthed at exactly the same moment. Within weeks of each other. And one supported the other like a hand in glove. And so I would go to numerous Tea Party events. Thousands and thousands of law-abiding, patriotic Americans who wanted to keep their country. Now, 2010 rolls around when the book comes out. And there's a lot of Senate races. I'm going to tell you something interesting. I bump into Ted Cruz, who I've known. Not well, but I knew him to be a good guy. He worked in the Bush administration. I bump into him at the, uh, at the values seminar that Tony Perkins puts on. And I'm in the green room, minding my own business, eating a donut. And he comes up to me and says, Mark, I'm going to run for the Republican nomination for the Senate in Texas. I said, who are you running against? And he told me the lineup, the lieutenant governor, was going to be very, very difficult. Can I have your support? I said, absolutely, you can have my support. And I spoke to Rush. I spoke to Sean. I spoke to Sarah Palin. I spoke to Rick Santorum. I spoke to anybody who would listen, who might have some clout to get behind him. And they did. Then there was a fellow running in Florida. He was 5% in the polls in the Republican primary. He'd been the Speaker of the Republican House. Not many people had heard of him, certainly not nationwide. But I was reading what the man was saying. And he was positioning himself as a Tea Party candidate. And I brought him on my radio show, and I interviewed him. And he sounded great. And you loved him. And I endorsed him. 
And within weeks, he went from 5% to 25% to 35% in a multi-race in the Republican primary. His name was Marco Rubio. In Utah, they have a convention system. I endorsed Mike Lee. Mike Lee has personally told me that one of the reasons he got involved in politics was because of the book called Liberty and Tyranny. Why am I telling you all this? I'll tell you why I'm telling you all this. Because every one of these events was seminal in modern history and took a lot of work. And so when I hear broadcasters and others beat their children, where are the conservatives? We're right here. Why aren't they doing anything? They don't get it. It's not one conservative. Why isn't he or she doing anything? What do I say when people call this show, Mr. Producer, and say, what will we do? My answer is, no, 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 no. What will you do? And you, and you, and you, in your own small way, in your own community, with your own family and friends. What will you do to save this country? So when you hear somebody with a big microphone or a big TV camera in their face say, what will conservatives do? Where are they? They've abandoned us. Nobody's abandoned anybody. Each and every one of us has to find our role now and do everything humanly possible to save this country. In the weeks ahead, we'll continue this discussion. I'll be right back. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. So we've been talking during the entire course of the program, including having read Stanley Kurtz's piece in National Review today. We have a major issue here. I mean, a serious problem with respect to the uh, suburbs. I didn't come up with this research. Stanley Kurtz did. He's the Senior Fellow Ethics and uh, Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Stanley, how are you, sir? Mark, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about this. You've raised an issue that's getting virtually no attention and you're far better than I to explain you. So explain as, as, as concisely as you can, what is the targeting of these suburbs all about and who's doing it? Well, Mark, Joe Biden wants to totally undercut the political and economic independence of the suburbs. And he can do that with uh, regulations left over from the Obama administration and with new and very frightening strategies that he has. And once he undercuts the suburbs independence he's going to first he's going to eliminate single-family zoning and then he's going to urbanize 
the suburbs. He's going to turn them into little cities. Now, now single-family zoning means single-family homes, right? Exactly. Exactly. A lot of people move out to the suburbs because they want to own a home, they want to have a nice yard, they want a good atmosphere to raise their kids. And they got away from the city in particular to do that. So what happens when you go out to the suburb and all of a sudden the feds come in, they change your zoning, they make you put up a lot of high-rise apartments, high-density, low-income housing, and all of a sudden where you've moved to get away from the city is turning into the city. And, and uh, federal bureaucrats will be controlling uh, development decisions for you instead of local government. That's, that's really a reversal of the federalist system itself. Now, people are going to be shaking their heads. They're going to say, wait a minute, Joe Biden claims to be a moderate. That's not the Joe we know. But it is Joe Biden, isn't it? That's right. I mean, Biden won the nomination by uh, seeming not to go as far as his rivals on all of these radical policy prescriptions. But if you look there at his policy website, you'll see that his housing plan is very radical indeed. For one thing, he promises to strictly enforce this uh, frightening, affirmatively furthering fair housing regulation, AFFH. It was created in his own administration, in the Obama-Biden administration, but it happened at the end. It's never been enforced, and it's very radical. And then on top of that, he comes out with an even stronger plan that will basically make it impossible for suburbs to wiggle out of the uh, enforcement of this regulation, and that's what's going to do away with the zoning control. That's what's going to urbanize the suburbs and many, many other things. I I can get into more detail. There are really a lot of different things, education, uh, transportation. Well, let let us do that. Let us, if if we need to be on another segment, I definitely want to cover this, Mm -hmm. Stanley. So, Stanley Kurtz, so let's, first of all, what was the Obama proposal and then what is the additional Biden proposal on top of it? Well, the Obama proposal has every suburb in the country that gets any kind of a federal grant uh, from HUD, from Housing and Urban Development. They have to do microscopic accounting of where everyone lives in their uh, district by race, by ethnicity, by English language uh, proficiency, uh, by immigration status, by handicap status. And then they have to compare the demography of their suburb with the total metropolitan region. And if there are any imbalances in any of those categories, and of course no place has perfect uh, balance, then they're responsible to start to remedy all that. And one one of the main ways the feds will force them to do that is by uh, getting rid of their single-family zoning and building these uh, high-density, low-income housing units, and then they'll have to what's called affirmatively advertise, go out to, say, low-income communities in different parts of their metropolitan region and advertise that there are these uh, housing developments, dense housing developments that have been created in their area. But that's not the end of it. On top of that, and this is still the Obama regulation, you have to make a giant list of all of what's called your community assets. Where are all your schools, especially the good schools? Where are the parks? Where are the transportation hubs? And then you have to see if every racial, ethnic, language proficiency, handicap group is within the same distance to all the best community assets. And if they're not, you have to create a plan to say that they will be. So basically no place will will be immune from the feds coming in and saying, we don't like the way you've arranged your situation, and we're going to demand that you change it. And that's just the Obama plan. The new plan that turbocharges all this 
is that on top of HUD grants, Biden wants to uh, make transportation uh, grants dependent on this. So when the states get money to build highways and repair highways, if you, your suburb hasn't given in one of these plans approved by the feds, then you don't get to participate. So a new road will bypass you or your old roads will deteriorate. Now, the suburbs could turn down some of those HUD grants, but they're not going to be able to turn down the repair and the building of the highways. So they're going to be trapped into having to let the feds dictate to them how they run their zoning and everything else. Stanley Kurtz, if you can, I'd like to hold you over for the next segment. Are you available? All right. We want to continue to pursue this with Stanley Kurtz. It's very, very crucial. Uh, And many of you folks who happen to live in the suburbs, you better start paying damn attention to this. I'll be right back. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The new American Revolution starts here. The Mark Levin Show. Call it at 877-381-3811. Stanley Kurtz, Senior Fellow, Ethics and Policy Center. You know, Stanley, it seems like there's a lot of uh, policy-oriented activity or plans that are aimed at the suburbs. Like, um, I don't know if people understand that when you make these inner cities so unlivable, you're defunding the police and so forth, as many people as possible are going to leave. Now, where are they going to go? Well, Mark, you're absolutely right. It's just crazy. It makes no sense that at the moment when so many people in the country are thinking, well, I don't know if it's that healthy, given the pandemic, to be in this dense kind of living with the big high-rises and the subways that transmitted uh, things in New York. And, gee, with all these riots going on, do I really want to keep living in this city? And the, the Democratic mayors aren't doing such a good job, so maybe I should go out to the suburbs. And at that very moment... The Democrats say, well, we're going to make the suburbs just like the cities. So the whole idea of America is that you have choice, choice about where you're going to live, and then when you get there, you govern yourself. That goes all the way back to the pilgrims. And uh, and the Democrats want to remake everywhere and everything over in the image of the city. So you'll have no choice. There'll be no escape. I'm not trying to build a bridge too far here, Stanley Kurtz, but even this argument about systemic racism, The people who use this phrase aren't talking about the inner city populations, are they? They're talking about really the the populations outside the inner cities that are systemically racist, are they not? Sure, but uh, to me it's a little bit of a nonsense term even, I mean, which I'm sure you agree with. Systemic systemic racism, you know, racism is all, uh, as it was traditionally said, was all about intent. You know, you you are a hateful person, uh, you hate someone else, you... Are discriminating against them, to have racism that isn't in your mind, what they're really saying is, we don't like the system. We want to change the system. And they throw the word racism on it 
because they think you'll be afraid to reply to that, or they'll say, well, then you must be a racist, too. What they're really saying is, we hate the system. We want to get rid of it. And, and this is a big part of it. And, of course, it is classically socialist to tell people where to live. You know, that's what socialists do. And that's what this regulation does. And so I think what they're saying is, we don't like the system. We want to remake America. And making the suburbs into little bitty cities is is a big part of that. And climate change, too, when you think about these things, right? You don't want single-family homes, two-car families, mobility. People need to be be sort of centralized in these various geographic areas. It just all seems to fit too neatly to me. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but these people think outside the box, and they think long-term, do they not? Oh, I totally agree. And I've looked into this. I wrote a book on this. And well, first of all, if you go to Biden's website, you'll see he mentions climate change is one of his excuses that he gives for making over the suburbs into uh, urbanized uh, areas because of climate change. But when I looked at a lot of the activists as I was writing the book, they they understand that what their their real view is that suburbs are bigoted and unjust, that they're a way of people taking tax money away from poor people in the cities. But if they say it that way, no one's going to go along with it. But if you say it's going to save the environment, you know, people will listen to you. So, um, sure, there are a lot of sincere people out there who, who even though I think they're misguided, uh, believe uh, that global warming is, is more at a crisis stage than I think it really is. But the truth is there are a lot of people on the radical left who some, some of them at least use climate change as a kind of cover for a much more radical desire to transform the country. You've been studying this issue related to the suburbs for many years. You've been writing about it a long time. I have, Is, Mark. Because but, but, but Stanley, let me just ask you, aren't you frustrated that with all the quibbling and talk and all the phony scandals and everything else, I don't see Stanley Kurtz on these news programs giving, given a platform to explain what could be probably the most diabolical plan of them all. Well, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of issues, really, substantive policy issues. We're, go- we're going on talking about statues, you know, and it's a way of distracting from the real implications of electing Joe Biden president and the agenda that the Democrats have in mind. And if they manage to flip the Senate, which is at least conceivable, then then it's really going to be a fundamental transformation. A lot of this is picking up on all the groundwork laid by Obama, like this AFFH regulation that they thought Hillary was going to solidify in place. Okay, they had a four-year hiatus, but now's their big moment, and that's what we ought to be talking about. Now, the Secretary of HUD, a lot of people like Ben Carson. There's nothing, you know, he's a very nice man. He's He's, 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 he's viewed as very solid. What has he done about this Obama regulation? He really has dithered on it. He susp- the good news is that he suspended in enforcement of it, and that's really good. That's why you haven't been hearing more screaming about it, because the feds haven't been doing all the things that they could be doing. But what he ought to have done is pulled the thing out by its roots so it couldn't be used by the next president, although the truth is even if it was pulled out, Biden would just, you know, it would take him a few years, but he'd put it back in again. Once you put the Democrats in, they'll put it back in. But Carson has dithered, and uh, and that's unfortunate. Um, but I, I'm encouraged by the fact that President Trump put out a tweet the other night 
saying that he's, he's very seriously considering getting rid of this. But what really needs to happen is they have to go hammer and tong at Biden and the Democrats and expose their agenda on housing and transportation. It really is a transformative agenda. And I don't believe that suburban voters, uh, and, and, and by the way, it isn't just suburbs. So, for example, I wrote a, several, a piece about uh, Dubuque, Iowa, which is a city and a democratic city. And that suffered greatly by Obama administration enforcement of affirmatively furthering uh, fair housing, but it's because they were treated, believe it or not, as a suburb, as if they were a suburb of Chicago, which isn't even in the same state. So you can look up my uh, article about uh, Dubuque. So this is this is a, a wide-ranging and, and dangerous policy agenda. And yeah, we ought to be debating this and many other Biden proposals that so far we haven't really been looking at. And I can hear the retort all over cable TV. Well, this is just white supremacy. This is just white privilege, trying to protect the suburbs and so forth and so on. Actually, it's about what kind of a, a, a governing system we want in our country and who gets to make decisions and individual mobility. Nobody's stopping anybody from moving to the suburbs last time I checked. That's right. And the truth of the matter is the suburbs are vastly more integrated than they used to be. And so really, by protecting the choice of moving to the suburbs, we're protecting everyone of every race and ethnicity. And even people, minorities included, who live in the cities actually would rather have their own neighborhoods improved uh, than they would be forced to move somewhere else. Mostly this is a scheme of academics and radical left activists. Mm-hmm. All right, Stanley Kurtz, if people want to find you or they want to read more about what you have to say, where do they go? Uh, they uh, just, I would say, Google, uh, Google my name and go to my archive at nationalreview.com uh, and start reading about this issue. Stanley Kurtz, K-U-R-T-Z, for folks out there. Thank you, Stanley. Keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Mark. All right, God bless. Now, I've spent almost the entire show, almost two hours on this subject and related matters that overlay here. And now I want to encourage the backbenchers to take a look at this quite seriously. I want to encourage the, the news entities on Fox, on uh, One America, on uh, anywhere, actually, to look into this. This is a big deal. I want to encourage all the websites that are serious news operations to do the same thing. You won't find this on the Drudge Report. You won't find this at Mediaite. You won't find this at Media Matters. That's not where you get news and information. Hopefully it'll be picked up by Bangino and The Blaze and others because it's a very, very important matter as far as I'm... And maybe they have already. I haven't looked in the last several hours. But it's very important, and really the issue is who gets to decide what kind of home you're going to live in, where you're going to live, and how you're going to live. This is one of the great things about America, regardless of race or creed or religion or anything else. Why should Washington, D.C. decide these things? Have we lost our country altogether? Are we prepared to surrender it? Now, I told you weeks ago, this is an election about you. This is an election about what kind of country you want to have. You want to have a country that embraces liberty or tyranny. 
And I also said to you behind this microphone and on Fox and on Levin TV, there are three seminal elections, really, in American history. 1860, 1864, and now 2020. That's how important this election is. So when you see this group, the Lincoln Project, or a couple hundred of uh, low-level Bush hacks with a few high-level Bush hacks saying they're going to vote for Biden, they're the enemy too. They got all kinds of psychological issues going on, all kinds of petty personal issues going on. They're the enemy too. So it's going to be incumbent on you to be resolute. I'm not going to attack. Where are the conservatives? Where are the conservatives? It's an amazing thing. In 1976, in 1980, in 2010, where were all these, these people telling you now? Where are the conservatives? I don't remember being in the trenches with these people. Do you, Mr. Producer? I don't remember it. So that's not helpful. That doesn't get us anywhere. Where are, where are, why, why? These are questions that are intended to promote the questioner, not to give you an answer. You folks, as you did with the Reagan revolution, as you did with the Tea Party revolution, as you did with the election of Donald Trump, you can't look to the Republican Party. The Republican Party opposed Reagan. The Republican Party opposed the Tea Party. The Republican Party opposed the president, Donald Trump. It's up to us. We need a leader. You're the leader. Organize your street. Organize at least your family and your friends. You need to be, as I've said it a thousand times, you need to be your own Thomas Paine or Paul Revere. It's you. Thomas Paine didn't look for a political party. Paul Revere didn't look for a political party. And Paul Revere was a working stiff. That's what he was. And became a hero. Dr. Warren, who I've talked about, one of the great revolutionaries, but was killed early. He was a doctor. A physician. And we can go on and on down the list. George Washington, he didn't rely on a political party or a leader. He stepped into the position. You have more power than you know, and you have more power than you think. On the comment sections on, uh, on uh, Facebook and Twitter, Mark Levin Show, Facebook, Mark Levin Show, Twitter, when I basically summarized my comments and posted them there that I just made, the comments are, Mark, we're with you. We're with, now what do we do? Show us the way. I did. Look in the mirror. You're the leader. Remember what I told you Mike Lee said? I read Liberty and Tyranny and I decided to run. It was one of the reasons that I ran. You don't have to run for office. You don't have to give up your job. But defend your home. Defend your community. Defend your liberty. Defend your country. Defend your constitution. Defend your declaration. Defend your economic system. Defend your cops. Defend your military. What do you do? Use your phone. Knock on doors. Get organized. Get on radio. Get in the newspapers, those that still exist. Make yourself heard. Become a squeaky wheel. That's what you do. 
And one thing leads to another. One thing leads to another. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. So lately, I've been on a mission to change the way people view their finances and to encourage people to overcome obstacles and adversity. It's just more and more important to me every day. So I've teamed up with the folks at Life Surge. Life Surge is a one-day faith-based event where you'll walk in hungry for success and you'll leave ready to build your resources to leave an impact on others. We're talking faith-fueled finance, growing resources, crushing obstacles, and then, yeah, using it all for something way bigger than yourself. I'll be joining Life Surge in Cincinnati on Saturday, August 3rd. Joining me in Cincinnati is Nick Vujicic, the man with no arms or legs that speaks about his trials and triumphs. Soul surfer and author Bethany Hamilton, Duck Dynasty's Willie Robertson, and author and pastor Craig Groeschel, star of CNBC's The Prophet, Marcus Lemonis, and Bethel Music. That's Life Surge, Cincinnati, on Saturday, August 3rd. Tickets are on sale exclusively at lifesurge.com. I hope to see you there. All right, you want to hear this, Mr. Badu? I'll take the cancel culture to a new level. Ready? Anybody who's a registered Democrat has registered with the party of slavery. Hey, registered with the party of segregation. Now, I know it doesn't stand for slavery today. I know it doesn't stand for segregation tomorrow, but it doesn't matter. It's the cancel culture. There's no redemption, none. Oh, they passed a few laws and made a few... doesn't matter. Well, Barack Obama, the first black president, he was... De- I, exactly. He ran as a Democrat, the party of slavery. In the past, certainly. There's no changing history. The monuments are coming down. The mascots are getting, being getting rid of. You know, flags are being... All kinds of stuff's going on. I don't understand how the Democrat Party gets a pass. And I don't ha- understand how people who register as Democrats get a pass. I'm for the people. Why are you registered in a party that supported slavery? That's my answer. Let's take the cancel culture right up there. Joe Biden... Joe Biden says, if you don't vote for him, you don't vote Democrat, you ain't black. Excuse me. Excuse me, Joe. You've not only made multiple racist statements in the past, because in my humble opinion, you've always been and you always will be a racist. I'm sorry. It's true. That's right. I said it. But on top of that, how does your party cleanse itself? If we apply the standard that's being applied to everything else, how is it we're supposed to take down Rush? Of Mount Rushmore, but the Democrat Party stands. I've said it week after week, and I mean it. My friends, we live in trying times. Being conservative puts us under fire, but we're not alone. One group stands out and has for years, AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Members get money-saving benefits, massive benefits and discounts, actually, cutting-edge news, and a great bi-monthly magazine filled with content and analysis not available anywhere else. AMAC has your back, and mine, because I'm a member, and I've been for a long time. AMAC gives you what the mainstream media won't. It's called the truth. They're a powerful voice for conservatives in Washington. Now, if you care about our future as much as I do, and of course you do, then please join all of us at AMAC today. Help them fight for individual liberty, 
our principles, our constitution, and get major discounts of benefits as well. Over 2 million constitutional conservatives like you and me have already joined AMAC. I encourage you, stand with us. Get the discounts and benefits as well. Become a member. Join today. Join right now. Go to amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Help preserve the America we love. A-M-A-C dot U-S. That's amac.us. Dorothy, Huntsville, Alabama, the great WVNN. Dorothy, go right ahead, please. Hi. Hi. I had a thought about this uh, issue about moving the HUD into the suburban areas. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't you think, uh, after all around this housing issue, I think possibly they want to try to encroach on the electoral vote? Abs- that's a brilliant point. Absolutely. Because they've already done it in some states. If you look at Virginia, uh, apart from this HUD rule and the rest of it, People have left Washington, D.C. They've left Maryland to escape liberal Democrats. They've come into Virginia and they vote for liberal Democrats. It's, it's, it's almost like a, uh, a, a mental condition. And, and uh, they want to escape taxes. They want to escape what they've created in these other states. And they come here and vote for the same thing. On top of that, massive immigration over the last half a century, uh, where the vast majority of immigrants that come from south of the border, just the way it is, vote Democrat. Or you know damn well the Democrats will build a wall 100 feet tall and 100 feet wide, and they'd arm it. But since most of the people coming in wind up being Democrats, um, they support it. Open borders. So you're exactly right. This is intended to affect the popular vote, the electoral college vote. In other words, change the nature of the citizenry. Democrats. Thanks for your call, Dorothy. I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, this final hour of the podcast is sponsored exclusively by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we care about, faith, family, and freedom. Thank you for listening, and please support AMAC. And you can become a member at amac.us slash join. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, So I decided to look at athletes who who left their their profession and their careers to serve in the United States military. And I'm sure I don't have all of them, but with the help of NBCSports.com, no thanks to ESPN, here's what I found. Pat Tillman, after the 9-11 attacks, left his professional football career with the Arizona Cardinals on a $3.6 million contract, so this is 20 years ago, to enlist as an Army Ranger. He served a tour in Iraq before being redeployed to Afghanistan, where he was killed by friendly fire. He won the Silver Star and the Purple Heart posthumously. Jack Loomis, after playing nine games for the New York Giants as a rookie, He enlisted 
in the Marine Corps Reserve on January 30, 1942. He was in the first wave of troops to land on Iwo Jima. He and his platoon remained on the island after the initial day to continue to battle the Japanese. Loomis helped knock out three enemy strongholds despite suffering injuries from grenade shrapnel before being mortally wounded by a landmine. Rocky Blyer, after playing one season with the Pittsburgh Steelers, was drafted into the Army, sent off to Vietnam, and while on patrol in 1969, his platoon was ambushed and his right leg was impaled by flying shrapnel. Although doctors said he would never play football again, you know the story, he sure as hell did. Ted Williams, while serving two tours as a Marine pilot, the baseball legend Ted Williams lost a total of five years of his professional career. When he enlisted for the first time in 1942, he had just completed his first Triple Crown season. After excelling in training, Williams served as a flight instructor during World War II in 1952 at the age of 34. He was recalled to active duty for the Korean War. He eventually flew 39 combat missions before suffering an inner ear infection that disqualified him from flight status. In his 21-year career with the Boston Red Sox, Williams twice won the Triple Crown, was an All-Star 17 times, was the first player to bat over 400 in a single season, and twice was the American League MVP. Jerry Coleman, the only Major League Baseball player to have seen combat in two wars, first postponed the start of his career to fly as a Marine aviator in World War II, then left baseball to fly in the Korean War. He would go on to have a lengthy broadcasting career. Art Donovan, remember those commercials? For four years prior to college, Donovan served with the U.S. Marine Corps as an anti-aircraft gunner during World War II. Stationed on his ship, the USS San Joaquin, was future President George H.W. Bush, Jackinton. After spending 13 months from 43 to 45 at sea, he volunteered for the Fleet Marine Force and was sent to Okinawa. At the end of his military career, Donovan had received the, Asi- the Asiatic Pacific Area Ribbon, and the Philippine Liberation Ribbon. He was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1968. Joe DiMaggio. In his storied baseball career, he won nine World Series championships and three American League MVP awards, was an all-star center fielder 13 times, had a record of 56 straight games with a hit, played for the Yankees, of course. On February 17, 1943, he enlisted in the Army Air Forces. While stationed in California, Hawaii, New Jersey as a physician, education instructor, physical education, he was promoted to the rank of sergeant. Joe Lewis. One day after fighting a charity bout for the Navy, boxer Joe Lewis enlisted as a private in the Army. Assigned to a segregated cavalry unit, Lewis continued to fight at charity events and was the focus of a military recruitment campaign aimed at encouraging African Americans to enlist. He also took time to help those who did join the Army, pushing for an end to the delays preventing a group of African Americans from entering officer candidate school. One of those men, 
Jackie Robinson. When released from military service in 1945, Lewis was a sergeant, been awarded the Legion of Merit, in addition to holding the heavyweight boxing title from 1937 to 49. Lewis also broke golf's color barrier by competing in a PGA event in 1952. Want to hear a few more? Bob Feller. Just two days after Pearl Harbor was attacked, Cleveland Indians pitcher Feller became the first Major League Baseball player to volunteer for active duty in World War II. After spending four years dedicated to the war effort as an anti-aircraft gun captain on the battleship USS Alabama, and earning five campaign ribbons and eight battle stars, he returned to baseball. When he retired in 1956, after an 18-year professional career, he was a World Series champion and eight-time All-Star, and had earned baseball's triple crown. So many. Jackie Robinson, signed to a segregated Army unit after being drafted in 1942, subsequently was accepted in officer candidate school and commissioned as a second lieutenant, He was court-martialed in 1944 after being taken into custody by military police for refusing to move to the back of the Army bus. Now there's a hero. He was acquitted by an all-white panel of officers, but the proceedings kept him from being deployed with his tank battalion. After being honorably discharged, Robinson signed with a Negro League baseball team in 1947, and you know he broke the barrier uh, with the Dodgers. So many others. Roger Staubach. David Robinson, Navy. Yogi Berra. Glenn Eller. Bobby Jones. Jack Dempsey. Bill Bradley. Charlie Paddock. Christy Matheson. John Woodruff. U.S. Olympic team. Sprinter. Dizzy Dean. Gene Tunney. Hank Bauer, Hoyt Wilhelm, Warren Spahn. All these men served in the military for their country. Hank Greenberg, Pee Wee Reese, Tom Seaver, Tim James, Steve Holcomb, Don Larson, John Wooden, the famous coach, Al Bumbry, famous baseball player, Whitey Ford, Gil Hodges, Larry Doby, Ken Norton Sr., Monte, Monte Irvin, Nolan Ryan, Rocky Marciano, Willie Davenport, Chad Hennings, Buddy Lewis, Eno Slaughter, Amard Hall, Roy Gleason, John Napier, Tom Landry, Tony Lima, a few more. I'm getting to a point. Kurt Simmons, Jim Lonborg, Whitey Herzog, Ed Figueroa, Willie Mays, Vincent Hancock, Archie Williams, Roberto Clemente, Lee Trevino, Leon Spinks, Bill Sharman, Patty Berg, Michael Ante. And others. Black, white, Hispanic. Isn't it interesting, Mr. Producer, with the exception of very few, 
I can't name a whole lot of basketball players who've left their careers to serve in the United States military. Other than the men I mentioned, there may be a few more, but there are a lot of men in professional football, and I can't think of many who left professional football to serve in the United States military. They're down for the revolution. They're more in baseball, but still, considering the number of players in baseball, not that many. Same with golf, not that many. But Colin Kaepernick is supposed to be our hero. Wouldn't it be great if the men I just mentioned to you, and women, were as well-known today, today, as Colin Kaepernick? Did any of them get the attention that Kaepernick gets for their service in the military? Not as great athlete. For their, no, they didn't. LeBron James talks a big game. But what has he done? I don't mean spreading cash around and spending a few holidays in towns where he doesn't live. What has he done? In fact, what have all these athletes done? I know they have the volunteer programs with handicap. I'm not talking about that. These men and women put their lives on the line for their country. Most of them made a good income during the day, but nothing like the top-tier athletes make today. Ted Williams took five years out of the prime of his life, of his career, I should say. Five years out of the prime of his career to serve in the United States military. You don't see much of that today. Instead, what you're going to see is basketball players running up and down the court with social statements on their backs. What a bunch of punks. What a bunch of punks. What you're going to see is disrespect for the American flag and those very men, those professional athletes, and those very women who served in the United States military. And then they tell you, don't believe your ears and your eyes. It's not about the military. It's about systemic racism. Well, what the hell do you think systemic racism is? Gone are the day of the Patriots in professional sports. Whether coaches, players, or even owners. Instead, we get gutless wonders. Self-serving egomaniacs who make enormous sums of money overcharging the very people that they pretend to represent. I'm sick of all of them. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. 
More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. I have an idea, ladies and gentlemen. It'll only work in certain states. Every city that defunds the cops, like in New York City, a billion dollars from the NYPD, you take a billion dollars out of the budgets for universities and colleges in the state. What do you think of that, Mr. Producer? You've got to punish these bastards. You've got to push back. Most of these tough revolutionaries are subsidized by you and me and daddy and mommy. Most of them are white. Most of them have gone to college. That's what Pew tells us. And almost all of them are Bernie Sanders supporters and now Biden Bolsheviks. These Bolsheviks, there's many things we can do. Many. So I'm telling the state legislatures, particularly where you have Republicans in these Democrat cities, but in New York, if there's enough Democrats and Republicans, put it on Cuomo's desk, force him, cut a billion dollars from the state subsidies to universities and colleges throughout the state of New York. And if you don't spend a billion dollars, cut it over a two- or three-year period. That'll get you to a billion dollars. That's what you do. You want to cut the cops? We want to cut the tenured Marxist professors and the little bastards who come out of these schools puking up the same propaganda. So that's what we do. You want to take it from law-abiding And law enforcing police officers, then we're going to take it from the punks. Sorry, that's my attitude. A billion dollars, New York, take it out of your colleges and universities. I hope they're listening to me because I don't play defense. Not when it comes to liberty, not when it comes to our country, and not when it comes to my family. There's all kinds of systemic racism on these college campuses. Billion dollars. Remove it. Missouri? Missouri. Minneapolis? Cutting their budget? Problem is you got a a clown for a governor. But still, the Republicans should make the effort. Make the effort. And when the budgets come up, Block budgets unless they slash the funding for colleges and universities. Because that's where most of these punks are coming from. We don't have to keep subsidizing our demise, ladies and gentlemen. Now pressure your state delegate or assembly member. Pressure your state senator and tell them in New York you want the budget that relates to higher education slashed by a billion dollars immediately. Wow, the committee... We want you to push it, whether we get it or not. We need momentum. This is what I'm talking about. When these clowns on TV and radio, all conservatives, they're just not doing anything. They're not doing it. And where are they? Nowhere. 
Okay, here's something we can do. All over the country. And Republicans, if you're a minority, but you have a big enough minority, block funding for these universities and colleges. They want to cut funding? You want to cut funding. That's what I would do. Also, a lot of states subsidize these cities. I don't know how much money the people of New York State are giving to the corrupt Marxist regime in New York City, but cut that too. You don't have to keep subsidizing socialist policies. They're going after the cops. Now you go after them. Come on, let's do it. Hit them where it hurts. I'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead, A-M-A-C dot U-S. that a copy of the Constitution you've got? Are you just happy to see Mark Levin? Call him now at 877-381-3811. Well, when we want a touch of brilliance, we go to my man Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review. Daniel, how are you, sir? I'm doing all right. Thanks for what you do. Thank you. More evidence that most coronavirus cases are now weaker than the flu. Daniel Horowitz, here we go again. The hype. I'm not saying this isn't a serious matter. I'm not saying certain people with morbidities, certain people at a certain age and certain locations shouldn't take care. That's not the point. The point is this constant effort to frighten the American people. And I think it's an effort to effect the general election because Biden and the Democrats are all into this. Go ahead. It's an effort to affect the general election. It's also a long-term way of really controlling the American people and getting everything the left ever wanted to accomplish in terms of dependency, uh, fiscal matters, and infringement upon liberty overnight through, and fa- uh, through fear and panic. So here, here's the deal. There is one central point of contention that we had between the two sides from day one, let's say mid-March. And that was the panic side said there are relatively few cases. It's what we see, and we see they're very serious. A lot of people are dying. This thing is serious. The World Health Organization said the infection fatality rate, meaning the percentage of people who get it and then die, is 3.4%. It was based on that assumption 
that we did something this unprecedented with such a lockdown and so many restrictions and infringement upon life, liberty, and property. What we always said all along is that this had spread far and wide for many months, and millions of people already had it, and millions more will get it, and therefore the fatality rate is much lower. And if you take out the nursing homes and you work on securing them like the Florida governor did, and you shield maybe another 10% of the population, it really is not much worse than the flu for everyone else. And now that we see that we are proven right, that there are tens of millions of people who had this, they're using it against us and saying, oh my gosh, we found another case. We found more cases. But really, we are seeing very few deaths with record cases, and in many ways, that should be a sign of good news. And this is why they do not, in the media, talk about the rate of death anymore. Because even the CDC, I looked a few weeks ago, maybe it's changed since then, I think it's even lower, 0.263%. You said 3.4%, they initially said, the WHO. 0.263%. And isn't it true that the case is now more of them or with the population that is younger and less susceptible to, I'm not saying completely unsusceptible, but less susceptible to a, to a serious illness as a result? Exactly. There are basically three remarkable factors taking place now, I would say since May, and really we're seeing the results in June. Number one is we're test bombing every living organism in this country, often multiple times. Someone wants to go back to work, they'll, they test positive, then they, you know... They now, let, let's stop there for a second. Test bomb. I mean, we have a lot of testing going on, right? Yes, we do. Well, we well how come the president isn't given any credit for that? In other words, they, were, they had no test when this broke out. That, you know, they, we have these, these institutions, these scientific institutions, these medical institutions. They've been around forever. They've gotten enormous amounts of money. There was no test. And now tests are readily available. Exactly, and they're using that against us as well. So the idea was to discover all the cases. So we're discovering them. Almost all are asymptomatic. Um, those that aren't, like you said, suddenly are very young, and, and there might be some reasons for that. And even the ones that have symptoms, what a lot of doctors are say, seeing now, a lot of them, they're not even flu-like symptoms. They're more in line with spring allergy type of symptoms or, or colds, not even necessarily severe ones. But, you know, if you test positive and you start having symptoms and let's say a little fever, you would normally never think of going to the hospital. Now I can't blame people for being scared given what's going on, and they go in. But that's very different from what we saw in New York circa March and April where people were coming in with acute um, you know, dis- uh, respiratory distress syndrome. They couldn't breathe. Their lungs were filling up. We are not really seeing that. So lots of cases – very few deaths. You look at North Carolina, there is now 17% what's called seroprevalence, meaning in 17% of the population, they are finding antibodies. If you do the math and you look at the number of deaths in North Carolina, that would put the infection fatality rate at about 0.1, which is roughly the benchmark for the flu. And also, nobody's commenting, isn't this also, at least in part, a result of the original response, which was hunkered down in your home. Okay, as the economy begins to open up, more and more people are out, more and more people are socializing. I don't mean they're within two feet of each other. It just happens that people are out doing their thing. 
And it, it, exactly what scientists at Stanford and Yale and Oxford and, and uh, Rockefeller College said, which is, okay, of course there's another wave. Because all those other people were told to, to live like veal. And here they are, they're out now, and so they get it. And, and the fear was that if you would have to come out again, a bunch of people would die. The fact that we're seeing all these younger, milder cases is good news. It demonstrates that with a little bit of prudence, you could live with it. It's, it's really that simple. And also, a lot of it is, is an illusory count, accounting gimmick. So, for example, um, nobody was in the hospital in these states, in, in Florida, Texas, the South, um, per, precisely because they didn't have too many virus cases. But on the other hand, they ended or terminated temporarily uh, elective surgeries. A lot of people were scared to come into ERs. So now that they're back up in full capacity – and probably even more so because people are making up for the care. They didn't have the hip replacements, the knee replacements. And also we now, unlike during the peak, have universal testing. So now we're discovering, yes, roughly 10 to 15% of any given population is going to have it. But just like George Floyd, according to CDC's guidance, technically died of COVID. I mean, he didn't, obviously. That's a COVID death. But, but this is important. Your point is... And you're not never, never allowed to talk about that. I've talked about this to, till I'm blue in the face in the past, which is they don't have a proper definition, even on their death count. And, and God forbid if you dare raise that. In other words, they keep saying people died from people died. And you're bringing up George Floyd because he had other issues. But if you follow the guidance on, on, on his death, since he had the virus or anybody has the virus, they said chalk it up to the virus. I've looked at every death certificate in the database from Minnesota from January 1st through June, and I could only find about 40% where they list COVID as the line A on the death certificate. Now, some of the line Bs are are legitimate, um, but a lot of them, they were people with Alzheimer's in nursing homes, or they were younger people who um, who died of drug overdoses, alcohol poisoning, and happen to have this because, as we said, a lot of people do have it asymptomatically. It's not that much of a problem, just like George Floyd. So we're seeing this at a hospitalization level. Now every living organism that gets into a hospital is tested. My wife had a baby in mid-April in Maryland. And well, congratulations. Thanks. And, and even as late as mid-April, I certainly wasn't tested. She was not tested. And certainly not in a state like Texas and Florida where they weren't having too many problems. Now all those people are tested. The New York Times found that one-third of the car accident patients coming into ERs in Miami-Dade's biggest hospital had COVID. They weren't coming in for that. They were coming in for trauma. Um, what, what, what do you make of Joe Biden says – the president of the United States did a poor job. The president of the United States has left the battlefield that if Joe Biden had been president, he would have acted sooner and could have saved tens of thousands of people. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is this. The president acted in January to cut off travel from China. The Democrats and Republicans like Mitt Romney opposed it. Mitt Romney opposed even shutting off travel to, from Europe in March, which was unbelievable. Um, sure, I think the president could have saved more lives by cutting off travel earlier, but they opposed it. And that's the bottom line. The bottom line we learn is that once you let it into a certain area, human mitigation is very limited. 
a comprehensive Penn State study of hard data now recently found that the virus was 87 times more prevalent in March than what we detected. There were 8.7 million instead of 100,000 that we had documented. Those horses long left the barn before lockdown. Sh- shouldn't, we, shouldn't we, at least to some extent, I don't mean congratulate us that people are dying, of course, but congratulate the fact that we've got testing out there uh, we, we, and, and that the death rate is so significantly less than we were told it would be. Uh, and that the American people have done a hell of a good job as best as they can do in their own circumstances. I mean, instead we are berated, we open too soon. And also, I, I listen to Joe Biden, Daniel Horowitz. Out of one side of his mouth, he says, you know, we're opening too fast, he's left the battle. On the other hand, he talks about the unemployment rate. No, I, I don't understand. The unemployment rate, the skyrocketing unemployment, is due to the shutting down of the economy. So he says, that's a good thing, but the unemployment these are just propagandists and demagogues, aren't they? Well, that, that was the trap. They wanted to get Trump to agree to the shutdown and then blame him for the effects and have it both ways. But, I mean, you're exactly right. This is what, what people don't understand. If you just listen to the news, you would think Florida and Texas are like New York and New Jersey. The reality is almost every day this week, Texas had fewer deaths than New Jersey, even now, even after New Jersey had 15 times greater number of deaths per capita, and you would think they'd be done with it already, and they're still having more deaths than Texas. You look at a simple chart of what's called excess deaths. Every winter, you see a hump. You see the flu season that kills a certain number of people. 2018 was a particular bad season. If you go outside of the Northeast, most states have a lower hump than the 2018 flu season. So if the worst they're going to get is after having a great result in these states, they have more cases just because not that many people got it, but very few deaths, that's something to be pretty darn proud of. And you know what? If you plot it on a graph, Mark, guess what you're going to see? A flat curve. Mm. That's exactly what they have. So it's been flattened. Um, Daniel Horowitz, keep up the great work. You are... uh... Uh, so important to this country. The article is more evidence that most coronavirus cases are now weaker than the flu. You should bookmark conservative review uh, because Daniel's on there and he's writing away and he's saying things that nobody else is because he's a fact man. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Take care. Happy fourth. You too. We'll be right back. in. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest-growing organizations in America, now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. 
That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. Well, let's take another call, shall we? Steve, Detroit, Michigan, XM Satellite, go. Yellow, yellow. Hello. Hey, Mark. hey, Mark. How you doing tonight? Okay, Steve. Go. You got one minute. Okay. Yeah, just wanted to throw out a, a thought here with all the information and news uh, here in the last week or so about the younger people testing positive for COVID uh-huh, and uh-huh, uh-huh. spike and everything. Um, maybe people need to remember that up till a couple weeks ago, um, people who did not have symptoms weren't allowed to get a test. And if most of these younger folks are asymptomatic... That, that's a great point. No, no, that's a great point. Now the universe has been expanded. You know, we'll, we'll swing back on this tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, police. God bless you. I'm sorry what you're going through. Firefighters and emergency personnel, we'll see you right here tomorrow. Don't miss it. And God bless. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.